Good morning. Welcome back again. <laughs> we were uh, here on what Friday night for the uh, the kids' performance and uh, of the Romina, how they managed to fit the Romina into an hour, and how they learned it in a week, in t- three weeks actually. Well, that part I can understand. <laughs> that was a struggle. So uh, this morning, wow, we're going to talk about uh, meaningless. The meaninglessness, the seeming meaninglessness of life when you get in those certain moods, when you see things a certain way. There's a poem by Hafiz called Absolutely Clear that goes like this. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, has made my voice so tender, has made my need of God so absolutely clear. We spend a lot of time trying to fix our ills, to break our depressions, to get out of our loneliness, to cure our boredom. And really, they are as much of life as anything else, and probably significantly more important uh, than the uptimes, because the uptimes don't cause us to think. We just sort of ride them and and, uh, exist where we are. But it's those times when things get really difficult when the mind goes really low or when the events in life really challenge uh, where we are and what we think and what we do, that, uh, that we grow and that we change and that we find out something new about our beloved, find out something deeper about our nature, touch a place farther inside that gives us a repose or gives us a freedom or gives us a strength that we didn't know we had. It proves to us that we can make it through something we thought might have beaten us. I've shared a couple of times this week with a few people a great uh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes uh, thing. I put it on my pad, though I know nobody can see it. I'm still going to put it up there. It's just four little panes there. In the first one, it's Calvin just at the night sky looking up with that cool sense of wonder that only his, his author can manage to inscribe on that faith just kind of a wondered minimalism, you know. And then the next frame, he's screaming out, I'm significant! <laughs> and then the next two frames are just nothing. Just him standing again in that empty, beautiful, amazing void out there. And so many times that's the experience of life. You know, we want to, be, we want to feel significant. We want to feel like there's meaning. There's, I'm, I'm important. <laughs> Talk on it. You know, listen to me. Do what I need. Give me what I want. Answer my questions. You know, I sang a song this morning. Oh, Lord, answer my prayer when you hear me call. You know, that frustration because you seem to pray into the vapidity of nothing and wonder what's going on and where to go. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, there's a, a, a great book called Ecclesiastes. How many people have read it? One. Okay, you fail. 
Do you know why you fail? Because I've mentioned this once before, and I said everybody should read it. <laughs> and nobody has yet read it. It's a great book because it's very real. It's uh, King Solomon. He's got all the money in the world. He's got all the women in the world. He's got all the power in the world in his day. His empire is thriving. Everything is going really well. He sits on a giant golden throne that has seven uh, ivory uh, steps going up to it with seven golden lions lining each side of the walkway to his throne. And he's feeling depressed. He's feeling, I've got everything, now what? So he had great faith in God, and he decided that he was going to really try and figure things out. So he started a journal to keep track of what worked and what didn't work. And he goes through systematically, chapter by chapter, he keeps track of it in this book, of trying all of the things that you and I think are going to give us meaning in life, that are going to give us a sense of accomplishment, that are going to give us a sense of happiness and fulfillment. And one by one, he goes through them, and he writes exactly what he does. I built huge mon monuments to myself. I built a capital city. You know, and then at the end, he logs how he felt about it. So he begins the chapter with this, begins the book with this, with this pondering, with, with this mood that he's in. And he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth, it remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it began and rises again. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north, and round and round goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after. So it's a rather depressing perspective from one perspective. It's a rather depressing idea from one place of being, and that's Calvin's place of being as he stands there in the night sky in front of this immense unknown this incredible mystery full of beautiful, amazing senses that just arise, awaken you, that sense of huge and that sense of grandeur and that sense of profundity, and you want a part in it. When you look at yourself as being a separate entity from it, it overwhelms you, and you want to play, you want to be invited, you want to control, you want to be on top of it. 
And so you scream out, I'm significant. You make every effort to prove it. And there's no response. The profundity just lays in front of you. You know, someone passes away. <sighs> that emptiness. You know, your spouse of 50 years, gone. You come home from the funeral and you sit alone in the house. All of these questions come to you. What was it for? Where did he go? What do I do? <laughs> what do I do with all this love <laughs> that I felt? And if we take the place of, of Calvin and scream out, Ah, what is this? That loneliness closes in. The voice stops. The room silences. There's no answer. And you insist, what is this? What is this? Where do we go from there? And what do we do with that? That is the whole, the whole summary of religion and the whole point of being in the presence of the divine as a learner, as a student. It's the whole reason we turn to God. There's a secret to it. And we're going to talk about how to get there. And that is this. You are not separate from what you're feeling and from what you're seeing. Calvin is not separate from the night sky and the infinity of the beauty around him, the immensity and the profundity of that isness. He is not separate. He does not need to scream out for his own significance because the I that is screaming out is make-believe doesn't exist. It's a part of that whole. It's the, it is that immensity. Swami Vivekananda says that, that this moment, that all that this moment contains, you are not in it. That's the problem with Calvin screaming out to be significant. That's the problem with crying in the lonely apartment when your partner dies. You are not separate and small and apart from the experience. You are that experience. The immensity and the profundity of what you're experiencing is yourself. You are the one who is the container of all of that. It is within you. And its profundity is your profundity. And its depth is your depth. And it does not demand that you scream out to be significant because it's the significance is what makes you recognize it and what makes the ego cry out in pain. Makes the ego cry out in pain because it is nothing in comparison to the immensity of you. Because it is nothing in comparison to the profundity of you. So in that moment, you don't fight that pain. You absorb it. You own it because it demonstrates to you the depth of your profundity, the depth of your love, the depth of your significance, the importance of that expression in that relationship, the importance of the manifestation of those 50 years, the sacrifice and the love and the companionship and the company is all celebrated in the profundity of the morning when you understand that it was in you and is in you has not left you, 
that you don't identify with the small ego that's challenged in the absence, that screams in the sight of this profundity and this overwhelming sense of being. There are things that cause us trouble, things that cause us to take this wrong view of things. When we, when we take on this identity of this small self, this ego, I had a dream one time where I was on a beach and there were thousands of people on this beach and it was infinite sand, infinite sand. And everybody was trying to build the biggest pile of sand and carefully guarding their pile because everybody else was trying to get the biggest pile of sand. You know, and so sometimes they were going over and ganging up and taking somebody else's sand. And then that person would get his friends together and they'd go over and take this person's sand. And then there'd be those quiet, lonely types who were slowly slipping in between the scenes and taking their sand and coming over to build their little pile. But they're on an infinite beach of infinite sand, and yet all of them are trying to produce an infinite pile of sand that is their own. None of them appreciating the fact that if they let go of their sense of little self and realize all of this sand is mine, all of it, all of it, there's no need to put it into piles. There's no need to guard a little section of it. I can run naked down the beach and own all of it. I can run over all the piles and play and be free. It's that sense of ego, that sense of self that tries to defi divide this beautiful self, this infinite self, this full self, this, this abundant self with need and with greed and with pain and with separation and with smallness and insecurity. And when you identify with that smallness and that insecurity and that need and that greed, you're going to scream out with the ego, I'm significant, and nothing's going to answer. Nothing's going to change. You will sit there with your pain of smallness. Sit there with your pain of insignificance, because the ego you've identified with does not exist, and its only endeavor is to prove otherwise. And that will take lifetime after lifetime after lifetime after lifetime without end because what is not true cannot become true. What is not real cannot become real. We try to build ideas in our head to get around it. You know, we sit there and we try and think of ways to make this world make sense. You know, we, we go into to Jnana Yoga. <laughs> we dig into those, those beautiful thought forms, you know, those those grandiose structures of reason and, and, and logic, and we think, oh, that's the answer. That's beautiful. And Vivekananda says, well, is all right, but there is the danger of becoming dry intellectualism. Why? Because it's a mountain of thought in the end. It's a mountain of ideas. You can't eat them. You can't hug them. You can't sleep on them. They can't keep you warm. They also are distraction when you think they are something in and of themselves. When you try and collect knowledge like sand on an infinite beach, when you try and collect understanding as if it is the gem, as if it is the one thing that's going to save you, turns into that dry intellectualism. You become very smart. You become very puffed up. You've believed in an imaginary thing, and now you've got an imaginary pride about an imaginary greatness. 
and a child comes up, knowing nothing of what you know, and says something infinitely more wise than what you have surmised with all of that knowledge. That's the nature of this world. Love is great and noble, Vivekananda says, but it can become meaningless sentimentalism. When you go around being, being mushy, as I like to call it, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been to these fairy gatherings in the woods with a the, with the bunch of hippies. Yeah, I've been there. You run around, little pats on the shoulders, hugging each other. Mm, I love you. I love you. You're awesome. Oh, my God, you're so great. Oh, I love that hair. <laughs> you know, go around this, this pretend compassion, this pretend affection that has no root. Because what is the root of affection? Renunciation. Love without renunciation is sentimentalism. It will give you nothing. You prove your love for your partner by the sacrifices you do for your partner. You prove your love for the world by the sacrifices you make for the world. And their love for you grows because they see sacrifice for themselves. And they sacrifice in return. And then you both sacrifice for each other and you both are pushing the sand into each other's piles and the piles are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you're getting more and more excited and falling deeper and deeper and deeper in love. And they sit and then you sit at the top of your two piles and think, wow, you're a great person. <laughs> it's not sentimentalism because you're sitting on a pile of renunciation, evidence that you gave something for them and they gave everything for you. That renunciation is important. Without it, even love becomes meaningless, becomes vapid, becomes nonsense. <clears throat> Let me tell you a story, Ramakrishna says. A man used to celebrate the Durga Puja at his house with great pomp. Goats were sacrificed from sunrise to sunset, but after a few years, the sacrifice was not so imposing. Then someone said to him, how is it, sir, that the sacrifice at your place has become such a tame affair? Don't you see, he said, my teeth are gone now. <laughs> you, know, you have to, you have, sacrifice can only help happen in selflessness. If you're sacrificing goats from sunrise to sunset for your Durga Puja because you can eat them from sunrise to sunset, you will be an old man and that enjoyment will be taken away from you. Sacrifice means there's no self involved. There's only concern for the other, only giving to the other, only caring for the other. This life will prove to you what you have, what you have invested in, what you have defined as your treasure. You know, Jesus makes that great statement, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. There your heart is also. So look at where you've put your treasure. What is it that you've put your time and your, your life and your efforts and your waking hours into? Schedule your day. Look at your schedule, actually. Don't schedule the day. Look at last week's schedule. Go through it day by day and hour by hour. Keep a little graph. Put a tick for each hour that you spent on each of the different things on that schedule. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
And know that if your treasure is in the world, in the temporal things, in the things that are passing, in the things that are going, know that in the hour of your death, when you lay on your bed there, watching it all wane away, you will scream out to an empty universe of your significance and of your importance. But as an ego, you were neither. It is only as a soul only as the whole, only as love itself, as intelligence itself, are you significant. Only as compassion itself, only as a battery that generates renunciation and sacrifice for others, only in that sense are you significant. <coughs> it's when you lie there in silence and contentment and the people around you scream, He's significant. Only then do you know that you lived according to your nature. That you lived according to the dream that lives within you. The identity of what you are. The identity of who you are. Every being is divine. Every being is God. Every soul is a sun covered over with clouds of ignorance. The difference between soul and soul is only due to the difference in density of these layers of ignorance. The beauty of this room is there's only one of us in here. God alone is. The rest of what we call ourselves are layers and layers of ignorance. Layers and layers of spent treasure on worthless things and identifying with them and at the end of the day, we lay alone in our bed and wonder, God, is this really what it was all about? Is this really it? I had a, a, a marvelous, I call it marvelous now because it's past, <laughs> midlife crisis uh, back just before I joined the monastery in the, the mid-90s. I was a cubicle rat and uh, had a wonderful cubicle in, in the middle of 23 other cubicles of people that were doing very similar tasks but in different ways for me all day long. And I was a programmer, and I was writing up systems to keep track of the money that the university was spending. And I remember one day just standing up and kind of looking over the cubicles like any good movie, you know, where you just look over and you see this sea of cubicles. And you're like, God, I'm, I'm 35 years old. I've spent 35 years of effort, and this, this is the sum of that. Really? <laughs> really? Gosh, I never thought once about this as a teenager. I never dreamed once of being in a cubicle. <laughs> I never longed a single time for taking a lunch break and standing up and seeing bobbing heads all around me behind computers. <laughs> what happened to my dream? What happened to who I am? What happened to my infinite potential? My infinite love? It doesn't take a change of career. It takes a change of attitude. If there's, if there's discontent, if there's lack of value, if there's pain, then there's lack of renunciation. Then there's lack of sacrifice. You aren't giving. You aren't caring. You aren't pushing against the boundaries of selfishness. 
because you can stand up in a sea of cubicles and you can see cubicles or you can see friends. You can see people you've invested yourself in. You see the little victories in their lives that you've helped pay for or that you've helped encourage. You see pictures of photographs on, on people's desks that you might have sent them to school. You might have paid for their books. And you're not looking out and seeing a room full of cubicles with you in the middle who's done nothing but collect paychecks. You're seeing yourself everywhere because you've loved and because you've cared. Swamiji is going to give us four ways of coming to the end of that scream demanding significance, to come to the end of that hollow desperation when you're alone in bed at night and wonder why. Why has 50 years of investment left me hungry? The first condition is that the student who wants to know the truth must give up all desires for gain in this world or in the life to come. That seems momentous at first. That seems huge. Like, oh my God, give up my idea of gain, but I've got so much to get. Look at my paycheck and look at Bill Gates's paycheck. I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> I've got a long way to go. How can I give up my ambition in that sense? It's by thinking about it. It's by thinking about it. We've, we've talked about this many times, and I will probably be talking about this, uh, who knows, if God gives me another day, I'll talk about it then. But the whole point is, this world is not made for taking, right? We've talked about that any number of times. You think you're here to take. You've got the car parked in your garage. You've got the house with a garage. May or may not be paid for yet, but it's yours, right? Seemingly. But why does Nachiketa say that death is the greatest teacher? Because there's no other way for you to realize that that car's not yours. It's your kids. And they're going to take it quickly the moment you can't prevent them from it. <laughs> the moment you're on your deathbed, they've got the keys in their hands. <laughs> you know? The moment you're in the box being put in the furnace, <laughs> they're enjoying the house. Not a big deal. Not a big problem. But it should let you understand that you didn't take anything, that you didn't get anything. You're in a box, in a furnace. <laughs> what do you have? What did you manage to gather up for yourself in this world? And the problem is, if your treasure was in this world, your heart was in this world. And where is it now? What have you accomplished? So think about it. Give up these desires, these nonsensical desires. Learn from your experience. Pay attention to what's going on. What vacation that you've ever been on has been long enough? What place that you've ever gone to has been far away enough? You know, pay attention to these things. What paycheck has ever been enough to cover everything? <laughs> of course, this room's probably a lot more disciplined than I was, but... Uh, Ask yourself these questions. What is the sum total of the things I'm trying to take? Because what is the end result of it all? We've talked about it many times. I love the joke of it. Everything is potting soil, right? Gather everything that you think you've earned and bought and purchased in this world, put it in a big pile, 
and let's say you get to be here for a thousand years. Come back and look at that pile at the end of a thousand years. Most of it's going to be potting soil. Come back in 10,000 years. The only thing that's going to still be there is whatever was made of styrofoam. <laughs> it's potting soil. God has made it abundantly clear that you did not come to this world to take anything. So stop it. Stop seeing this world as taking what is yours. He came you here to give. What do you give? Think of the warmth that's coming off of your body all the time. You're here to give warmth. You're here to give love. Think of how you've helped that person who was in pain, who was alone, who had just lost their partner. And you come over with your plate of lasagna. <laughs> or pizza. <laughs> we had to get it in there. You come over with your service. And what's important about that? Because somebody thought about them. Somebody shared their pain. Somebody recognized them so they didn't have to scream in the dark. I'm significant. You gave love. That's what you're here for. So the first step, stop thinking that you're here to get something for crying out loud. Stop being such a fool. You can't take anything from this world. It has nothing to give you because it's an emanation of what you are. The second condition for those of us who are crazy enough to want the truth the disciple must be able to control the internal and the external senses and must be established in these spiritual virtues. Now, the second one, if you're able to do the first one, chances are you've got a, a, a head start on the second one. Because in the first one, the taking is of the material things. In the second one, he's talking about the taking of pleasures in this world. We just read in that wonderful introduction by Solomon the eyes are never going to get full from seeing. You're never going to fill your ears up with hearing. Try it. <laughs> You've never seen enough. You've never seen enough. You will never see enough. You know, I took a trip to Edinburgh last month because I had never seen it before. Now I've seen it. So, <laughs> I haven't seen Warsaw. <laughs> I haven't seen the jungle in Africa. You know, there's still a long list of things. Should I then pay attention to that long list and go running after the rest of the things? These pleasures and experiences of the world. Look at, the, look at these, young, these young students who have made the decision that they're going to go and have all of the physical pleasure they can. Which of them has had enough? Which of them has had enough? Which of them has stopped looking because they were sated, because they were full? Learn. Become wise. Don't be an idiot and believe in make-believe things and spend your life chasing after them so that you can die a meaningless old man who's demanding that people recognize he's significant. 
when egos are never significant. The third condition, after you've given up your desire to gain things in the world and you've controlled your internal nature so that you're not rushing out to the senses to fill things that cannot be filled, is a nice what seems to be an easy one. And this one will grow out of your first two attempts. The third condition the disciple must fulfill is to conceive an extreme desire to be free. Where is that going to come from? You're going to get a taste of it the first time you give something up. There's terror on the foreside of renunciation. Oh my God, give up, sell everything I have and give it to the poor. Jesus told that to a rich man once. The rich man said, Jesus, what do, what do I have to do to, to, to be free to know God? And Jesus says, well, you know, obey the scriptures, be a good person, obey, you know, the laws and traditions of your society. You'll be fine. You know, that's, that's the first step. So the young man says, yeah, oh, Jesus, I've done that. I've done that. I, I go to church or I go to temple. I make my sacrifices. I do my puja every morning. But I, I, there's still something missing. What do I need to do? Jesus stops, it says. So he's now paying attention to this young man. Oh, hmm, maybe he really does want something. So it says that Jesus stops and turns to him, looks him in the eye and says, go, sell everything that you have, give it away, come back here and follow me. And the scripture says that the man's face fell and he turned around and walked away in sadness. And Jesus turns to his disciples and, say, and says, Salvation is difficult indeed for a rich man, for a man who thinks he has something, for a man who thinks he's gathered something in this world. Salvation is very difficult. For the man who's placed his treasure in nonsense and believes he has something, very difficult indeed to find his way out. Ramakrishna says, one must be restless for God. If a son clamors persistently for his share of the property, his parents consult with each other and give it to him, even though he's a minor. Why to shut him up? I can tell you after this three weeks with these kids. <laughs> At the end of the day, you'll give them anything, whatever you want. God will certainly listen to your prayers if you feel restless for him. Since he has begotten us, surely we can claim our inheritance from him. He is our own father, our own mother. We can force our demand on him. We can say to him, reveal yourself to me, or I'm going to cut my throat with a knife. He's talking from his own experience there. That's a crazy thing. We, want, we worship a guy. We've made a statue of a man and worshipped him for 200 years who almost committed suicide out of his desperation to know God who out of desperation almost killed himself in a shrine <laughs> using the holy sword on the statue itself to kill himself. We worship somebody who was that desperate to know love, to know his nature, to understand the truths of these scriptures, who was that desperate to know 
what it was to give. To end it all for the sake of losing that, that ego. Losing that sense of self which burns with an endless hunger and endless insecurity. The master said, I used to pray to her, meaning God, in this way. Oh, mother, oh, blissful one, reveal yourself to me. You must. Oh, Lord of the lowly, Lord of this universe, surely I am not outside your universe. I am bereft of knowledge. I am without discipline. I have no devotion. I know nothing. You must be gracious to me and reveal yourself to me. He's a man that's not stupid enough to believe he has something. I have nothing, mother. I have nothing. I lay in my bed at night and I realize I am utterly alone. Everything that I've put my life into is turning into dust around me. My 60-inch television is now three inches too wide, too deep. It's no longer, it's not the thin one. <laughs> I have nothing. And you've got to help me because I don't know where to look. You've got to be gracious because I have nothing else to ask. I have no one else to go to. My parents are dead. My partner is dead. My children have moved away. I rattle around this big house with a car in the garage that I can no longer drive. I have nothing. I'm yours. You made me. You gave me this incredible experience of life. And I've been an idiot with it. I've made horrendous mistakes. I have no virtue. I have no self-control. I have no discipline. I can't do the first verse of even any of the scriptures. You can line up your charges against me and I have no way of defending myself. I have nothing. The fourth and last condition of a discipleship is the discrimination of the real from the unreal. The truth, okay, this is important, when, when, when an avatar, when a manifestation of God himself starts off a sentence with those two words, it's time to take notes. The truth is that God alone is real and everything else is unreal. Men, universe, house, children, all of these are like the magic of the magician. The magician strikes his wand and says, come delusion, come confusion. Then he says to the audience, open the lid of the pot and see the birds fly out into the sky. But the magician alone is real. His magic, it's unreal. The unreal exists for a second and then vanishes. So he ends with the biggest clue of them all. That which is temporal is unreal. Now, what does he mean by unreal? Certainly that's not unreal. 
What he means by that is that your understanding of this thing is unreal. You think it's a table. You think it's a podium. God alone exists. Love alone exists. Vivekananda had a wonderful, uh, says a wonderful thing about love. He says it is for love alone that the electrons circle the center of an atom. It is for love alone that the planets revolve around the sun. It is love alone that is the attracting force in this universe. All forces of attraction are love and love alone. You know, Eckhart Tolle had that wonderful experience where he saw light and understood that light was love. We just think it's light. Cool. I need it to find the bathroom at night. Eckhart Tolle saw that light was love. That it was everywhere shining, reflecting off of everything. And for three months he couldn't move. Three months he sat there drooling in bliss, he said, unable to gather any other thought because the amazement was so profound at what he had seen, what he had understood. He had seen the real in the unreal. He had seen God behind the ephemeral. And he was overwhelmed with the beauty of it and with the immensity of it. Shiva was seated in Kailash. His companion Nandi was near him. Suddenly there was a terrific noise. Nandi was startled. Revered sir, what does that mean? Shiva said, Ravana is born. That's the meaning. A few moments later, another terrific noise was heard. Now what is that noise? Nandi asked. Shiva said with a smile, Ravana is dead. I just, I like that when I read it. I don't know why I put it in there, but that whole notion of, of him smiling and knowing, seeing all of this stuff going around him and smiling, you know, knowing, yeah, what, what, what seems so important to those people under Ravana, Ravana was a big deal, you know, quite the demon who, who ran quite a kingdom, you know, caused a lot of trouble. He's born, boom, he dies, you know. Your president causing big troubles, born, gone. Everybody has their moment, but it's only a moment. There will be a day when those moments are finished. Look beyond, look beyond those things that are constantly changing. Find the beauty of the nature behind it and understand what you live in. Understand what you're pushing through in a day. It is love and love alone mixed with pure intelligence and the magic of existence, the magic of being. Birth and death are like magic. You see the magic for a second and then it disappears. God alone is real and all else is unreal. Water alone is real. Its bubbles appear and disappear. They disappear into the very water from which they rise. All of these changing things, they're going to come and go. The ego despairs at that because the ego depends on the temporal world for its existence. It depends on the changing world for its stability. It depends on things that turn to dust for its wealth and for its importance. And if you are foolish enough to put your name on that ego, you will never have enough to eat. You will never have enough pleasure. 
you will never have a long enough vacation. Put your mind on the things that are unchanging. What is that unchanging? That which is listening to your ears. That which is looking through your eyes. That which is emanating the idea of love that you're looking for in the wrong direction. It's the thing that tells you that there is infinity in a world that has no example of infinity. It's that thing in you that whispers immortality when there's nothing in this world to give you an example of immortality. That is faith. That knowledge that emanates from within. Faith isn't some stupid belief in something you can't prove. That has nothing to do with it. Faith is being able to hear that part of yourself that's whispering infinite and immortal. That's whispering love and existence. That's whispering intelligence and contentment. God, though he is everywhere, can be known to us in and through human character. Now, this is a very cool verse. And actually, I, I, <laughs> I say that only now. It was this morning that it occurred to me it was a really cool idea. God, though everywhere, can be known to us in and through human character. I thought about that. I was like, why? That's weird. Human character is the only means for God to show himself to us. You think about that. How is that possible? It's because that which you identify with is that which you see in the world. If you're a pure person, you, you, you assume that the normal person is pure. If you are a loyal person, you assume that the, that the normal person is loyal. If you're doing wrong things, you're assuming everybody else is doing the wrong things. You only know of this world what you know of yourself. If you don't have any character to stand on, you are not going to see virtuous love. If you have not been able to sacrifice for someone, you will not believe somebody else's sacrifice for you. If you are selfish in the things that you do in a day, you will not be able to trust somebody who is unselfish toward you. You will always look for their motive. You will always suspect it's a game. If you do not develop character within yourself, you will never recognize God around you because you will, you will assume and believe utterly ridiculous things about him. No character was ever so perfect as Sri Ramakrishna's, and that should be the center around which we ought to rally at the same time allowing everybody to regard him in his own light, either as God, a savior, a teacher, a model, or just a great man, just as he pleases. So he's saying, you know, if you're looking for someone, if you have an ideal already, if you, you know, if, 
If you found an ideal in someone besides Ramakrishna, that's fine too. The ideal has many names. But if you're looking and you see Thakur, you can know that he's a good place to start and you can think of him in any way that you want. Just as you please. We preach neither social equality nor inequality, but that every being has the same rights. And we insist upon freedom of thought and freedom of action in every way. Vivekananda says, this world is yours, and we as a spiritual people will give you all the room and all the lack of judgment that you need to try and explore and experiment and poke at and investigate to find your truth and to find your strength and to build your character. And that we as a Sangha, we as a, as a group of folks trying these things, will hold no judgments toward you or toward each other as we investigate and as we try to learn and try to find this reality. We reject no one, neither the theist, nor the pantheist, nor the monist, nor the polytheist, nor the agnostic, nor the atheist. We reject none. This is Vivekananda. We reject none. Everybody is welcome here. Everybody looking for character. Everybody looking to be a disciple. Everybody looking to escape the scream of despair of the ego. We reject none. The only condition of being a disciple is modeling a character at once the broadest and most intense. Nor, we do, nor do we insist upon particular codes of morality as to conduct. We do not ins insist upon character, eating or drinking. These habits, except so far as they injure others. That's our only concern. Don't hurt yourself or anybody around you. Well, hurting yourself you can do, actually. <laughs> don't, hurt the, don't hurt us. <laughs> don't hurt anyone around you. But do you see how open Vivekananda is? Religions become about judgment. It's become about exclusivity. That's vile. That's vile. That has no place in religion. The only requirement is the recognition of the scream within and an earnest search for its cure. We leave, we leave everybody free to know, to select, and to follow whatever suits and helps them. Thus, for example, eating meat may help one, eating fruit another. Each is welcome to his own peculiarity, but he has no right to criticize the conduct of others. If you dare to stand somewhere in your life and think that you've assumed the right to criticize others, Vivekananda himself is in your face saying, you have no right. None. Each man is given the space and the respect to work in their, evident, in their, in their perspective ways for reaching the highest in whatever way is necessary to explore and experiment with whatever is available to teach themselves the truth. 
And what do you have to offer? Your giving, your renunciation, your sacrifice. That is what you're called to give each other. Each is welcome to his own peculiarity, but he has no right to criticize the conduct of others because that would, if followed by him, injure him, much less to insist that others should follow your way. A wife may help some people in this progress. To others, she may be a positive injury, but the unmarried man has no right to say that the married disciple is wrong, much less to force his own ideals of morality upon his brother. Please let us become known for that. Please. Let us become known for our sacrifice. Let us become known for our renunciation, for our sincerity, for our earnestness, for our love. Let us stop being fools believing that we have something, and let's turn to God as beggars for our inheritance of immortal and eternal love, infinitely given, infinitely supplied. Takor sings a beautiful song. O gracious Lord, if like a bee my soul cannot embed itself deep in the lotus of your feet, what comfort can I find in life? Where can I gain with wealth untold, neglecting you, the supremest wealth? I take no pleasure in sight of the most lovely infant's face, if all its loveliness reveals no trace of your dear features there. Moonlight is meaningless to me as darkest night if your love's moon does not rise in my soul's firmament. The purest wife's unspotted love is stained if in it is not set the priceless gem of divine love. O Lord, whenever doubt of you, born of base error and neglect, assails my mind, I writhe in pain as from a serpent's poisonous fang. What more, O Master, shall I say? You are my heart's most precious jewel, the home of everlasting joy. Yesterday it was sweet madness, reciting poems for hours and talking about love to anything that moved. I laid down late thinking I might be able to sleep all the way until there was the light of resplendent sounds and polished jokes from the morning birds. That was foolish of me, for in just a few minutes three worlds crawled from a cave in my heart, built a huge fire and yelled, Get up! They could not contain their happiness living inside one as ripe as me. 
we began jumping up and down and banging our heads like drunk bronze clappers in a sacred Buddhist bell. Against the fields and mountains and against all the jeweled walls of this universe, yesterday was such exquisite madness, singing about the friend for hours and talking about love to anything that dared to move. Yet I believe another wonderful day, and perhaps even a sweeter height of rare inspired insanity, O Hafiz, has indeed just begun. (laughs) 